Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, Episode 12. Is everybody in the world going to die before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that theory is the beginning of solution? What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? All I've ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it would be the truth. Welcome to Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the Word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom. The hour is late, the time is short, and the storm is coming. So this is your opportunity for a systems check. I'm here to wake up the sleeping servants of Yahweh God and equip them for the last days. I do that by teaching discernment, pouring over prophecies, treating the infection of mystery Babylon in the church, and giving you courage. My book is Leviathan's Ruse, the comprehensive guide to the battle between good and evil. My website is watchmanalexander.com. I recommend subscribing to my newsletter via the sign-up link on my website, because I'm about to release an ebook that will be free to everyone who's on the list. I'm not bragging when I say that this could be a life-changing book. I literally designed it to bring about positive change in Christian living. Some of you listening are very mature in your faith and aren't going to draw as much from this book, but there are still nuggets in there that I suspect will benefit everyone. After release, there will be links on the website to download the ebook, so if you like it, you'll be able to direct your friends to those links and they can have it for themselves. In today's episode, we're going to finish our discussion about the Fall Holy Days, or Moedim, and then we'll have an extended question and answer period because i got a number of questions that have come in that I have not yet gotten around to. During the question and answer period, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments or plagues in the book of Revelation, and the sequence as well of the book of Revelation, so stick around for that. But for right now, we need to finish up our discussion of the Moedim, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, Sukkot, and the Last Great Day, or the Eighth Day, which falls right after the Feast of Sukkot. As I record this, we just finished up the Day of Atonement, and I want to talk a little bit about what that day means and exactly how we should observe it. But before I do that, let me step back to the first of the fall Moedim, which is the Feast of Trumpets, or the Day of Shouting, Yom Teruah. In the last episode, I explained how Yom Teruah was fulfilled in 3 BC, and that was the day when Yeshua came into the world. So as the Jewish people were celebrating, shouting, and blowing trumpets, Mary was either giving birth or she was being overshadowed by the Spirit of God. I think it's the, the latter, not the former. I think that was the day of his conception. If we look forward nine months from there, we find the Star of Bethlehem. That's a topic for another show. What I want you to understand is that this is not the only feast that has multiple fulfillments. So when we go back to the spring feasts, 
we find that the day of Shavuot, which was later called Pentecost, had more than one fulfillment throughout history. A good number of Jews believe that the day of Shavuot is the day on which the Torah was given to the people of Israel as they stood at the base of Mount Sinai. And that makes sense if you think about the amount of days it would have taken them to get from Egypt over to Sinai, especially if you believe that Mount Sinai was in Saudi Arabia, not in the Sinai Peninsula, as Ron Wyatt discovered and as I uh, completely agree with. So it was on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba, not in the Sinai Peninsula, but in northwestern Saudi Arabia. There's lots of good evidence to indicate that that is the real site. So that was a long journey, and it would have taken them weeks. Now, the problem with that is there's nothing in the Tanakh, in the entire Old Testament, that directly indicates that the day of Shavuot was about the giving of the Torah. However, I think there might be a reason for that. Because what God intended to do was belayed that day. It it, uh, stalled out because the people were disobedient. So he intended to make the entire nation of Israel a nation of priests. He stated that to Moses. That was his intent. However, when Moses came down from the mountain holding the Ten Commandments, he found the people being idolatrous and rebellious. And that completely ruined the plan. He broke the Ten Commandments. God was infuriated. Uh, Many of the people died as a result. And it was only the Levites who were zealous for obedience who became the priesthood. So the spirit that God wanted to pour out on that day was not poured out in the way that uh, it should have been had the people been obedient. Thousands of years later, what God wanted to do originally was finally able to be completed because of the sacrifice of Yeshua. The Holy Spirit could then be poured out on people who had been regenerated by the work of the Messiah. So at Jerusalem, on the day of Shavuot, when everyone was gathered together, because Shavuot is a pilgrimage day, uh, a day when everyone is supposed to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, we saw that the fire from heaven came down upon the heads of those believers who were congregated there. Just like the fire came down on Mount Sinai, Uh, while the people were congregated beneath it. And on that day, the law, which had been engraved in stone the first time, was able to be engraved in the hearts of those people who were circumcised of heart because of their faith in the Messiah. And they all became priests. We as disciples of Yeshua HaMashiach have become a nation of priests under the order of Melchizedek. So there are strong parallels between Pentecost and in Sinai, uh, suggesting that they both happened on Shavuot. But we can go back further. We can go back to the Book of Jubilees, which was written at the very latest in 200 to 100 BC, but it could have been much earlier than that, and just the latest copy we have is from the 2nd century BC or so. In the Book of Jubilees, chapter 6, we read that Noah came out of the ark and set up an altar and made a sacrifice to atone for the earth, on the new moon of the third month, the first day of the third month. It says that he had seen the tops of the mountains during the 10th month of the previous year, but the water had to keep receding. Um, Things had to dry out a little bit before they could come out and uh, start to do something like set up an altar. So it was months later in the third month of the following year that they were finally able to make this sacrifice. Well, 
The sixth chapter of Jubilees doesn't give us a timeline as to when God responded to this sacrifice and told Noah that he was making a covenant with the earth, gave him instructions about not eating blood, etc., and then put the rainbow in the sky. However, it seems to have been shortly thereafter because the narrative doesn't uh, it doesn't go on to place any other events in between. It doesn't seem to indicate some large gap of time. It seems as if God responded to this sacrifice fairly quickly. Um, it could have been on that day, but most likely not, because when does Shavuot happen? It happens six days into the third month. So what I think happened is he made the sacrifice on the new moon, and then five days later, you had Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, and also the Feast of the First Fruits of Wheat. The First Fruits of Wheat. So we already had the First Fruits of Barley, which was back in the first month, but then the wheat ripens later and you have the first fruits of the wheat being given on Shavuot, which is really what we see fulfilled on the day of Pentecost is that the early believers, those Hebrew disciples of Messiah that were waiting in Jerusalem for something to happen, they were the ripe wheat, just as Yeshua gave parallels, or excuse me, parables about the wheat and the tares, the wheat being the good individuals, the tares being the bad individuals in his field or in his kingdom. Um, these were the good individuals. These were the wheat grains or stalks that were being uh, gathered together, the first of many to come. Okay, so they were the first fruits of this kingdom age when lots of wheat would be grown. But I think it's amazing that we have the covenant of the, the covenant confirmation of the rainbow happening in the time of Noah. And then on the same day, thousands of years later, you have the covenant being given uh, to Moses and the people of Israel, ratified by blood, by the way, uh, just as Noah made a blood sacrifice, the Israelites uh, sacrificed an animal and blood was sprinkled on them by Moses. And there was a gathering together. I'm sure Noah's family was gathered for the sacrifice. Uh, likewise, there was a gathering of the elders of Israel, and they actually went and had a meal uh, on Mount Sinai. And then thousands of years after that, you have people gathered together for the day of Shavuot. They were feasting. it. It's a feast day. So they were having a meal together, and then they were praying together. There was fellowship happening there. And then you had this uh, the sign of the covenant being renewed and being uh, shown in a new way on that day. So to me, uh, this day has multiple fulfillments stretching throughout history. I think it's pretty amazing. And in the same way, the Feast of Trumpets or the Day of Shouting can have multiple fulfillments. So I believe that it was fulfilled with the Messiah's birth or conception in 3 BC but there's got to be an end time fulfillment as well, because the feasts have to be uh, unfolded along the, the normal timeline that is observed every year. Just as after Yeshua's sacrifice, the days unfolded normally all the way up to Pentecost. Um, and so even though it had been fulfilled before, it still came on schedule according to uh, the, the layout of the feast in that particular year. I hope that makes sense. It's a little hard to explain, but I think the same thing is going to happen in the end times where, uh, on the very last year, which will be a Jubilee year, you will have the feast of trumpets or Yom Teruah, uh, kicking off the whole, what is it? Um, 
2728 days of the fall Moedim. And so uh, that to me, that day of shouting is going to be the opposite of what it originally was fulfilled as. And I said this last time, but I'll say it again. I think that originally it was a day of celebration about the Messiah coming into the world. But on that last year, because the Jewish people rejected their Messiah, it will be a day of shouting for battle. It will be a day of alarm because of attack, because they're coming under siege by the anti-Messiah who betrayed them. And then 10 days later, when we hit the day of atonement, that will be the day of the sixth seal being broken. That is going to be the day when everything changes because Yeshua described, in fact, I should just, I should just read this now. Let's go to Matthew 24 and verse 29. Yeshua is talking about his return, the end of the age. And he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, note that he said after the tribulation, not before it, not seven years before everything, but after the tribulation. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So, After the tribulation, on a day when the stars fall from the sky, the sun and moon are darkened, and uh, a loud trumpet is blasted, then the angels gather up all of the people of the bride to come to the wedding ceremony. That's a pretty clear timeline to me. And I, I talked last time about how the Day of Atonement is the day of the last trumpet blast. That is the day when once every 49 years, Every seven times seven years, the Jewish people, or I'm sorry, excuse me, the Hebrew people, the Israelites in general, are supposed to blow the trumpet. And it's one loud blast on that day. That's the last trumpet of the entire Jubilee period and of the fall feast, because you had a day of trumpets when there was lots of shouting and lots of trumpets. But you only have one loud trumpet blast 10 days later. That's the last one. And so that is the time I firmly believe that the resurrection will occur when the bride will be raptured up to the up to heaven to take part in the wedding. So we just read Yeshua's description of the day of the resurrection. But let's now read what I think is John's description of it in Revelation chapter six, starting in verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and there When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So we see that when the sixth seal is broken, the sun goes black, the moon becomes black because it turns to blood, 
the stars fall. Now, that never happens at any other time in history. That's a one-time event. The stars falling from the sky to the earth? Okay, that's definitely a a very end-of-the-age event that uh, is a one-off. And then we see that the sky is rolled up like a scroll. Well, like Yeshua said, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Okay, that that means, by the way, the powers uh, would be principalities, which are stars, because the Bible calls stars angels. So... The stars are shaken, but the whole sky is shaken. The whole heaven itself is shaken as well and rolled away. And then everyone freaks out and runs and hides. I mean, everybody. Why? Because they see the sign of the Son of Man. Now, it doesn't say that in Revelation, but that's what's happening. They're looking up and they're seeing something and they're panicking. Well, Yeshua said what it was. He said, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then they'll see him coming on the clouds. So that's what they're witnessing that's scaring them so badly. And then they run and hide. Well, Jerusalem was under siege before this point. But at this point, now everybody just drops what they're doing and tries to escape because they know what's coming. And so the Jews are given a reprieve from attack, the remnant of the Jews, which whatever is left at that point. And then that is the time when they see the sign of the Son of Man and they see Messiah in the clouds gathering up his bride and they're not among it, that's the point at which they're going to say, oh no, we messed up. And we're going to go back and we're going to look at um, some other verses, some other oracles in the Old Testament that talk about the mourning that's going to happen on that day. And um, there's a passage that says that the remnant of Jacob is going to wail and and grieve like one grieves for the loss of an only son because they're going to understand who they rejected, that they actually uh, missed their Messiah and picked the wrong one later. And so that's a day of of great mourning for them. But we're going to come back to Revelation and talk a little bit more about the seals, trumpets, and bowls, and the timeline of all that stuff. But for right now, let's talk more about the Day of Atonement. I've just explained that the Day of Atonement is going to be the day of Israel's national repentance, or I should say, the repentance of the Jewish people, the remnant of Jacob, um, at the end of the day of Jacob's trouble. I guess not in the end of it, I guess in the middle of it, because this doesn't end the day of Jacob's trouble, it, it, but it, it stalls things, right? The attackers uh, who are going against Jerusalem are going to run and hide, so things are going to be belayed. But they're still going to be in the day of trouble and and more trouble is going to come and Yeshua is going to have to return and rescue them in the middle of this next attack, which will be the really big one. But what does the Day of Atonement mean for us who are Christians or Messianics or, uh, you know, Ephraimites, whatever you want to call yourself? What does it mean? Because we've been atoned for already. We've accepted the blood sacrifice of the Messiah. Our sins are washed away. Do we need to even observe this day anymore? Amanda was asking this question yesterday as we were driving home um, from somewhere from out of town. And we discussed it for a little while because she didn't understand why we need to mourn. Uh, Shouldn't it be a day of happiness like we've been atoned for? So it should be a joyous time, right? And I had to explain that in a sense, yes, that's correct, because not only have our sins been atoned for, but also we're looking forward to the time of being taken up for the wedding, which will happen on the Day of Atonement. So this is going to be an awesome day. However, it's not just about us. It's about Jacob. It's about the Hebrew people, the, the actual descendants 
of those who came out of Egypt. And for them, it will be a terrible time. And so we mourn not because, you know, we're sad for obviously at any time of year, we can be sad about our sins. Um, We have joy because they've been washed away. So we're not mourning because of our shortcomings before the Lord and and then hoping he's going to see our our weeping and uh, have mercy on us. No, we've got the mercy already. Thank God. What we're mourning for is the fact that our brothers, the people of Jacob, they are still lost and they're going to have to go through the time of Jacob's trouble. You know, their day is going to be a day of wailing and great grief, whereas ours is going to be a day of joy. So until our day of joy comes, that that moment of being taken for the wedding, we need to um, be in remembrance and kind of like a, a future remembrance. We're um, not only mourning for their state now, but we're mourning for what we know is going to happen. Just like we have a, a day of Holocaust memorial every year when we we become somber and we remember what happened, the, the atrocities that happened to the Jewish people in Europe. In a similar fashion, we need to remember the suffering of the Jewish people right now and the suffering that is yet to come. When we deprive ourselves on the Day of Atonement, we are modeling what's going to happen to the Jewish people on that last Day of Atonement. Because when they see the sign of man and they begin to mourn and to repent, there's not going to be any eating or drinking. There's not going to be any kind of entertainment, no kind of celebration. They will deprive themselves. They will uh, just like a person does when he mourns for the loss of a family member, you don't eat or drink. You you dress in sackcloth or or black uh, heavy garments. You put ashes on yourself. You don't anoint yourself or wash yourself. You humble yourself. You become debased. That's what's going to happen to them on that day. Their only concern is going to be figuring out what do we do now? How do we respond to this now that we know how we've screwed up? Some people really disagree with me about this whole resurrection on the day of atonement theory. And I was arguing with someone about it. This it wasn't a really an argument it was a debate um, online about this this week. And this gentleman was saying that the fall of Jericho is a foreshadow of the resurrection, because when they blew the trumpets the last time, the seventh time and the walls came down, uh, the command was you shall ascend up to the city. So he was saying that prophetically, it's on the seventh trumpet um, that we find in the book of Revelation, on the seventh trumpet that the uh, the way will be opened up and the people are supposed to ascend up to meet the Lord and, and be with him in the heavenly Zion. In the story of Jericho, the people of Israel walk around the city seven times over the course of seven days. And then on that seventh day, they get up early so at the beginning of the day, they start to go around again seven times and they blow a trumpet every time they go around. And then on the seventh blowing of the trumpet, everyone shouts and the walls come down. Well, this brother's idea is that the seven times or excuse me, the seven days around Jericho represented the seven millenniums, which I completely agree with. I think that is prophetically what it means, that each day represented a thousand years, just as a day is as a thousand years to the Lord. Each time around Jericho for those first uh, six days represented a thousand years. So now uh, in the 
early parts of that seventh day, at the beginning of that, which would be the beginning of the day of the Lord, prophetically, uh, the people did another seven circuits and blew the trumpet seven times before the wall came down. And this brother's idea is that the uh, seven trumpets there on that last day represent the fact that the Feast of Trumpets begins uh, on the first day of the seventh month. And so that number seven of the trumpets, he is associating with months. And then he said, uh, the fact that the walls come down and people ascend up on that day means that the day of trumpets is going to be the resurrection. And I told him, I get where you're coming from, but it could just as easily be about the Jubilees because a Jubilee is seven times seven. So the seventh month times seven trumpet blasts, it gives you 49, which is to me just a hint, a prophetic hint that the time at which this occurs, the the falling down of the walls, which by the way, represents all of the human cities and structures falling down during that great earthquake at the end of the age. That's what it's about. It's about the fall of the Babylonian system, the fall of man's civilizations and his ways. And then the people are able to rush in and take over that area. So that's talking about the establishment of the kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom that will then last forever. But uh, the, the seven trumpets there could very well be a parallel to the seven trumpets in Revelation. I don't think they have to be talking about months, but just the very fact that it's seven trumpets on the seventh month to me says 49. It says Jubilee. It'll be a Jubilee year when this happens, which means this could be talking about the trumpet on the, the, the final loud trumpet blast that brings everything down and that calls the bride up as being the one that happens on the Jubilee year on the Day of Atonement, not necessarily the Day of Trumpets. Okay, let's keep moving. What happens after the Day of Atonement? Well, after that day, we have a five-day gap, a hiatus that is not explained. We don't know what is supposed to occur during that time period. My belief is that this is when the flood of wrath starts, and there will be 40 days of wrath, just like there was 40 days of rain um, during the flood in Noah's days. Remember, Yeshua said the days um, at the end of the age will be like the days of Noah. Well, in the days of Noah, it rained for 40 days to wipe out the wicked of the earth. And so in this, um, the beginning of the day of the Lord uh, that kicks off the millennium, we're going to see the wrath of the Lord beginning to pour out. And that will happen over a course of 40 days. Now, the wrath of the Lord is encompassed in the bowls of wrath, because when we look in Revelation, we see an angel talking about the bowls about to be poured out. And they say in those plagues, the wrath of the Lord is filled up or complete. The bowls of wrath um, really begin the day of the Lord while the wedding ceremony and preparations are happening in the heavenlies. But Sukkot itself, which represents the honeymoon of the Lord and of his bride doesn't happen until five days after the day of atonement. So that's a bit of a mystery. I'll say something about it here in a minute, but Sukkot cannot be understood unless you realize how the Hebrew people traditionally did weddings because they didn't do weddings like we do it today. What happened is 
a couple would get engaged by entering into a covenant. They would have a written covenant that would then be ratified by the drinking of wine. So it was the symbolic blood, the blood of grapes instead of the blood of animals. But they would uh, indeed make a covenant in blood. And then the man, the groom-to-be, would leave the bride to go back to his father's house and to spend some indeterminate amount of time preparing a place for them to dwell there, uh, attached on to the father's house or on the father's property. And this was called the chapa, the room that they were going to go into for the actual wedding consummation was the chapa. And they continued to have contact, chaste contact, if they were doing things the right way. Um, but this could last for months or years before everything was ready. And the father would give permission to the young man. You can now go and get your bride. So he would come in the mid in the middle of the night, just as Yeshua said, I come like a thief in the night. He would come and announce with the shouting and the uh, blowing of trumpet or, or noise from musical instruments that the wedding party had arrived before actually getting to the bride's home. The bride would then wake up, get her stuff on, get her stuff together, and would rush out and meet the groom. And then they would go back to the father's house. So the groom never made it all the way to the bride's home. In the same way, Yeshua will never make it all the way to the earth when he arrives again. He will be in the sky. That's why Yeshua said in Matthew 24, the sign of the Son of Man appears and then they see me in the clouds. He never said he comes down to the earth. So he calls the bride up. She meets him. They go back to heaven. And then there is a seven day honeymoon where the wedding is actually consummated in the chuppah. Now, then this is the traditional thing. This is not the modern Jewish way of doing it. This is the traditional Hebrew wedding ceremony. So they would be sequestered away for seven days. That's the parallel that we find in the Feast of Sukkot, because Sukkot is a week long, and the first day of it is a high Sabbath. There's complete rest. You cannot work on that day. Why? Because that's the day when the bride and the groom are getting together for the first time and consummating their marriage. Um, that's going to be the, the climax of all history for the people of, of God. Um, so Adonai wants us to respect that and to look forward to it. It's amazing. I love Sukkot. Everybody loves Sukkot because this is the time when you can really celebrate. This is the time when you can, man, just uh, go crazy and, and have fun and be happy. Well, uh, for seven days, we're tabernacling with the Lord. And then at the end of that, there's one more day. It's called Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day, the great day. And that's another high Sabbath when everyone is expected to come together to, to congregate again for a great feast. What's that about? It's about the wedding feast, because after the seven days of being in the chuppah, the couple would emerge and a feast would follow. So everybody that knows them, their family and friends had all gathered together and awaited them uh, during the, the honeymoon. And when they're done with that, there's going to be a huge party and they, they eat and drink and are merry. Okay. So everybody is involved in this great feast. Yeshua told lots of parables about uh, wedding feasts like this. It really is amazing how God has foreshadowed all of this, but let's go back to that five day gap. What's that about? Well, interestingly enough, we find that there is going to be a judgment of God's people 
um, not a judgment unto damnation, but a judging of their works and an issuing of rewards. Paul calls this the Bema seat. The Bema seat in Rome was what the uh, the Olympians and the, the athletes would stand on, uh, or they would, I guess it was a Bema platform, or maybe the seat itself was where the judges were sitting and they were watching the people on the platform. I'm not really clear on that, but at this Bema event, uh, the athletes would be rewarded. They would be placed in order of their accomplishments and given their their trophies or uh, prizes, whatever it was that they had won. The same thing is going to happen, Paul says, with the bride of Christ. She's going to be rewarded with things and and her uh, performance is going to be judged. Well, when does that happen? It's got to happen before the wedding, because in the revelation, we see that she's given garments to wear which represent the righteous deeds of the saints. So everyone has garments on that are representative of how they've lived their life, of how many good fruits they have borne during their time on earth. So that judgment and the preparation that occurs of of a bride getting ready for her wedding has got to occur before they go into the chuppah, so before Sukkot. I think that's what that five days are about. I think it's the time of preparation. And interestingly, in scripture, five is the number of preparation. Five is the number also of purification and sanctification. So I think that time period is absolutely about the Bema judgment and the uh, the washing clean, the final washing, you might say, and the final preparation of putting on the garments and, and just getting ready. Now, I also see this in the five days that happen between uh, the new moon of the third month and the day of Shavuot, because according to the, you know, what we seem to see in the scriptures now, it's not a real clear timeline, but according to what seems to be there and according to Jewish tradition, the five days following the new moon of the third month were the time period during which the people of Israel were preparing themselves for the uh, covenant for the issuing of the the Ten Commandments and whatever other instructions God was going to give, um, whatever he was going to do. And like I said, he was supposed to pour out a spirit at that point and make them all priests, and that didn't happen. But during that time period, everyone was assembled together in one spot, and they were um, they were really getting themselves ready, according to the Jewish tradition. So I think that that gives us a good indication of what five days is all about. If you assume instead that the day of the resurrection is Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets, instead of the day of atonement, then what you've got to do is uh, account for a 15-day gap, because it's 15 days between Yom Teruah and the start of Sukkot. Well, what does that mean? Why would it be a 15-day time of preparation? 15 has no meaning in Scripture. You're not going to find any significance attached to the number 15, but certainly there is to 5. So, And why would you need 15 days of preparation? That seems like an, an overly long time. Uh, so yeah, I really think that the time between Yom Kippur, the day of the resurrection, and Sukkot, the day of entering into the honeymoon, is the preparation time. Hold it right there, watchman. Get a cup of tea. It's time for Everything Under the Sun when we take three minutes to hear from the watchman's wife, Amanda Lawrence.
when the Watchman asked me to record a part on his podcast every week, initially I was excited and then immediately horrified. What am I going to talk about, Alex? I can't expound on prophecy or unveil some some new insight on scripture. And the Lord was like, it's all right, girl, I got you. So uh, he's had me focus on my life pretty much every time um, things I'm struggling with or or issues I'm having. So and today we're going to talk about um, forgiveness, reconciliation and recognizing issues in your own life. I'm going to talk quickly. This is the first time I'm, I'm not using a script. And the last time I tried to record this segment, it went like seven minutes, which is four minutes past my allotted time. So real quick, I have been hurt recently by several people who have just kind of up and left, either left the country, left the state or left the friendship. And I've just been left behind. And uh, this brings up a lot of abandonment issues from my childhood and adolescence. And while I've come a far well, I've come a long way with that. Um, it's still hurtful and it still brings up a lot of those old hurts. So lately I've been upset f- from someone who has left the friendship and, um, at the Rosh Hashanah service a couple weeks ago, led by pastor Jonathan Dade, he was reminding us to forgive other people before we can go to Yahweh asking for his forgiveness. And I, I have a friend who always tells me to flip the script. And she says, if you're upset by something that someone has done to you, flip it around and ask yourself if you've ever done the same thing in someone else's life. And I did not think that that was the case, um, in this situation and asked God to help me walk through forgiving this person, et cetera, et cetera. Three days later, I had a phone call with someone with whom I was friends back in Maryland, um, who turns out has been harboring anger with me for years and years for basically the same reasons that I'm upset with someone here. All right, Jesus, I see you flipping the script in my life. So that was challenging to hear, but it was also a really good reminder that we need to be inwardly focused I listened to a sermon yesterday from the village church and he talked about how when you change a fish tank, the water in it looks clear until you stir up all of the rocks and all of that nastiness floats up to the surface. And he says that God stirs up emotions and stirs situations in different areas of our lives um, to to show us the places that we still need to work and the places that we still need his help and his sovereignty to cover. So right now, I just want to ask you if there is a situation in your life, um, in your world where you're feeling hurt by someone, flip the script, think, and it might just be a small slight. It might be something larger, but I just ask that you would kind of flip it and, and look inwardly. Yahweh has forgiven us so much. And we are supposed to walk that out here on earth. And it's so much harder because we're not God. But um, the next time that you're upset by someone cutting you off in traffic, have you done that before? The next time that someone hurts your feelings by saying something unkind, haven't you said something unkind? So flipping the focus back to us helps us look for areas of opportunity in our own lives that Maybe God is stirring up so that we can finally address them.
great. That break was just long enough for me to have a cup of exotic wedding black blend. Now it's time for our extended question and answer session. My friend Jeremy asked me to talk about early Mesopotamian religious beliefs, especially about the Anunnaki, the Anunnaki. Let me say that a little more clearly. And how the Anunnaki compare to biblical accounts of uh, fallen angels or angelic rulers. So I think he asked this because someone challenged him about ancient lore and was claiming that the Sumerian myths are more reliable than the Hebrew, what they would say were myths, but the Hebrew Bible, because they were written before the Torah and the other scriptures. Anunnaki means sons of Anu. Anu is the Sumerian supreme god, equivalent roughly to our god, the father. By the way, the Sumerians were the first fully-fledged civilization according to secular historians, but that is not the case. The Bible clearly tells us that there was civilization before the flood. Of course, the secular historians don't believe that there was a worldwide flood. So they're looking at the archaeological remains of the Sumerians as being the oldest signs of civilization. What really happened is that the precursors of post-Diluvian civilization popped up in the Indus Valley, in southern Mesopotamia, and in Turkey, all at about the same time. Really, the whole area around Mesopotamia was being colonized by the extended family of Noah as they spread out from the mountains of Ararat. So there were small tribes in some remote places um, in Turkey and uh, into the east towards, I guess, what would now be Afghanistan. People hadn't spread very far, and there were only a few little families here and there, whereas most of the families had decided to go to southern Mesopotamia, to the the plains of Shinar. So until the Tower of Babel incident occurred and everybody started to spread out, most of the people alive were building up a civilization in southern Mesopotamia, or what we would now call Sumer. What secular historians completely and purposefully overlook is the fact that the Sumerians were drawing on stories from the antediluvian, or the pre-flood, world that were passed on by Noah's family. So Anu was their name for the god of Noah. That god, Anu, had sons who were celestial beings, which the scriptures call Benai Elohim, the sons of God. Ben means son, Elohim is the most high god, so Benai Elohim is the sons of God. But the Sumerians called them Anunnaki. You hear the name of the god Anu within that? Well, the Naki part is the sons of. So Anunnaki, sons of God. It's the same thing. There's a famous author named Zechariah Sitchin who popularized a theory saying that the Anunnaki were these advanced extraterrestrials who started civilization on the earth. And he claimed that uh, the Hebrew authors of the Bible copied many of the Sumerians' ideas, but they sort of turned them on their heads. (laughs) This is exactly wrong. First of all, the Torah may have been written later in history, but the narrative of Genesis starts from the very beginning. So if it was dictated to Moses by Yahweh, then we can safely say that the Sumerians were simply remembering ancient history and putting their own twist on it, calling it their own. Furthermore, we have the book of Enoch, which dates to before the flood. I mean, the book of first Enoch claims to be an eyewitness account of what was happening in the antediluvian world as some of the sons of God rebelled and bred with women and gave heavenly secrets to mankind. Enoch called these sons of God the Watchers, 
and he blamed them for bringing us advanced civilization, including war, sorcery, um, astrology, the understanding of all kinds of arcane arts and other things that the fairly primitive descendants of Adam were never intended to have. There were other sons of God as well. It was not just the watchers. There were rebellious sons uh, that were part of the divine council. There are lots of sons of God that have remained holy. There are other sons of God who fell with Satan. Um, So there's different groups of these. You know, the heavenly host is vast and innumerable. The point right now is that the Sumerians are just remembering the things that the people before the flood knew about and passed along and that Noah remembered. In fact, Noah for sure had a copy of Enoch. So for that reason alone, uh, the Sumerians would have had a knowledge of the celestial beings. Our second question is from Mark Svoboda, and he's wondering, are the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments or plagues of Revelation sequential? The answer is no, they overlap. They're not sequential. And to demonstrate that, I'm going to show you that the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl are identical. Now, if you're not familiar with what these are, throughout the book of Revelation, we're presented with three sets of judgments or plagues that are sent against the world. The first seven are called seals. It's when Yeshua is breaking the seals on this document, this scroll that has been shut up and uh, no man can open. Uh, We're not told exactly what that is. There's lots of guesses. It's not really important right now. But the second set is when seven trumpets are blown by angels, each one having a different effect on the earth. And the last set is when seven bowls or vials of wrath are poured out on the world. And this is what, as I was saying before, happens at the beginning of the day of the Lord. These bowls are begun, the angels begin to pour them out when the day of the Lord kicks off. The people of God, the the church, the ecclesia, whatever you want to call it, the bride, is not going to be present on earth when the bowls of wrath are poured out. They will be present, in my opinion, during the other judgments. However, I believe we're going to be protected from those things, not from tribulation, but from any sort of supernatural judgment coming from the Lord. He will protect his people from those, just as he protected the the Israelites in Egypt. These different judgments all conclude at the same time. Let me show you why. The description of the breaking of the seventh seal occurs in Revelation chapter 8, the first five verses. There's a reverent silence in heaven. And then an angel takes fire from the altar and throws it onto the earth. That results in thunders, many voices or rumblings. The actual word, the translation there is not very clear, but it's voices or rumblings of some sort. And then flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Remember that list of things, because it's going to be important here in a minute. Now let's look at the seventh trumpet. Well, before we actually read what the seventh trumpet does, we need to read just before it when it, when we find in Revelation chapter 10 that in the days preceding the seventh trumpet, there will be no more delay. An angel says this, no more delay. Delay of what? Delay of Yeshua returning. The father has given permission, go get your bride. The angel continues to say that in these days just before the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announced to his prophets. What is the mystery of God? It's the story of Messiah. 
it's what has been happening from the very beginning, from when God promised that the seed of the woman would overcome the seed of the serpent and overcome the serpent himself. It's the whole story of Messiah being wed to a beautiful and perfect bride, the the father giving his son away in marriage. It's the son having all things put under his feet. It's the conquering of the world by Messiah. All of this is the mystery. Yeshua's life and, and his mission being played out is the mystery. So that tells us the resurrection is going to have to happen before the seventh trumpet. It tells us that um, the gathering of the nations, you know, all of the different tribes of people, as we're told, the gospel going out to the ends of the earth before the end comes. That's all part of the mystery. And after the angel makes this statement about the mystery of God, he then gives John a scroll or someone gives John a scroll to eat. It doesn't go forward and show us the seventh trumpet being blown yet. It actually takes us backward. Because John is given a scroll to eat and he said, you must prophesy again. So what this is, is a reset. I want you to understand that Revelation does not make sense with the rest of Scripture if it's interpreted chronologically. If you try to just read it as linear from beginning to end, you will not be able to line it up with the other oracles in Scripture. It just doesn't work. I've tried it many times. What we have to do is interpret Revelation thematically. It's as if, and I think Rob Skiba and um, Doug Hamp said this on one of their shows, but it's as if you're standing in a control room at a TV studio and you're looking at lots of different monitors and different things are happening on different monitors. And so at one point you're looking at one of these monitors over here and you're seeing a story go on, but then, you know, and maybe that's, it's one camera of a scene that's being filmed, but then you look at another monitor and you're seeing a different camera's perspective. And maybe it's even being played back at a different time or at a different speed. So you're seeing perhaps the same events or the same scenario in general, but you're seeing it from different perspectives or at different times because you're looking at different monitors. And this is kind of what happened to John. He's seeing this thing and then he's being taken to another perspective and he sees it again and he's zeroing in on different things that are happening during the same time period. It's like we're getting an exploded view of different parts of the last uh, seven or so years of the age. The description of John being given a scroll and told to prophesy again is the most blatant reset in the book of Revelation, but it's not the only one. There are others. What happens is after he's told to prophesy again, we go back to the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. We're back at the beginning of the Shemitah cycle. And this is chapter 11. And we're told about the two witnesses and we see their three and a half years of ministry. And then we see the beast overcome them. And that's going to be the point at which the, the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple. Then we skip forward past that three and a half years of great tribulation. And now that we're at the end of the Shemitah cycle, we see the seventh angel blow his trumpet. So it's very odd how this part is laid out. But when you realize that there's there's certain themes that God is wanting to address one at a time, it makes more sense. But John is told, you know, prophesy again at the end of the sixth trumpet. And then we go back, we see some other stuff. And then we go to forward to the end again. And now we're seeing the seventh trumpet being blown. Okay. And when he blows his trumpet, this is what's declared. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. 
the kingdom of the world has become the Lord's. So if the kingdom has come, that means the day of the Lord happened. Kingdom come, day of the Lord, it's the same thing. The elders in heaven praise Elohim and they say, You have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's what they're saying to God. Now, this is past tense. They're telling him these things have happened. So the wrath of God has already begun to be poured out, the wicked are being destroyed, and the saints are given eternal rewards. Now, we talked about the beam of seat judgment. We talked about how that comes after the resurrection on the Day of Atonement. So what we're seeing here is the results of the resurrection that has happened at the sixth seal, but it's before the seventh trumpet. This, the sixth seal is when the sun was struck, the moon was turned to blood, the stars fall from the sky like figs, the sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven, and the bride is raptured. That all is the sixth seal. The seventh trumpet happens after that because the bride has gotten her reward at this point. So it's the beginning of the day of the Lord and the reign of our Messiah between the sixth seal and the seventh trumpet. After the elders say all these things, then we see the same kind of stuff that we saw at the seventh seal. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake. But this time, there's also heavy hail. You'll find that in Revelation 11, 15 through 19. Okay, before looking at the seventh bowl, let's look at the harvest depicted in chapter 14. The harvest happens when two different angels take a sickle and they, they swipe the sickle on the earth and they gather together. And obviously this is figurative speech. Now, no doubt angels actually are going to be doing a harvest, but, um, you know, is an actual sickle going to come down to the earth and, you know, cut produce? No. This is figurative. It's telling us, it's making a comparison between the way that farmers on earth actually do a harvest and the way that the angels are going to gather up the harvest of people. The first to be harvested is the wheat. Now, we've already said the wheat stands for the righteous people. It's the bride. It's uh, not the tares and it's not the grapes, which we're about to see. It's the exclusive set of good grain that God has been growing for himself. So that we're looking at the resurrection here. And that happens before this other angel does his harvesting. And what he does is gather up all the grapes. And these are called the grapes of wrath. These represent all the rulers of the earth, the, the Goyim rulers and the people that follow them and the ones that fight for them. These grapes, the armies of the Antichrist and he and the, the false prophet, they are destroyed trodden outside of Jerusalem, which is the last battle. So outside of Jerusalem is this valley called Jehoshaphat. And in that valley, the Old Testament prophets tell us the Messiah will crush or Yahweh will crush all of the enemies of Jerusalem. Let's read about it in Joel, Jeremiah and Isaiah. So first is going to be Joel chapter three, verses 12 to 16. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But Yahweh is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you saw there the imagery of the sickle and the harvest, which is just what we were talking about in Revelation. You see the imagery of a winepress of grapes being crushed. And this is the day of Yahweh, it says. All these things, these grapes are getting crushed in the valley of Jehoshaphat, also called the valley of decision. Now we go to Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 30. You, therefore, shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, Yahweh will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for Yahweh has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by Yahweh on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be refuse on the surface of the ground. Again, we saw the grapes imagery. We saw the Lord roaring, roaring in a mighty voice is uh, another theme that we keep seeing. And he's going to destroy uh, people from the nations from one end of the earth to the other. Finally, we go to Isaiah chapter 63, starting at verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So these are passages which parallel the second half of Revelation 14 when we're told that the grapes are gathered together and crushed. This is a description of the last battle, the armies of the world being brought together and destroyed by Yeshua. In the next chapter of Revelation, Revelation 15, we step back in time from that last battle just a little bit, and John is shown another sign in heaven. He sees seven angels with seven bowls, but more interesting is that he sees gathered around the throne those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Those who conquered the beast and didn't take its number are the tribulation saints, those who were killed, who uh, made it out of the great tribulation by their faith, by standing firm and being martyred. Most of them martyred. Some survived until the resurrection, but most were martyred. So what are tribulation saints doing in heaven before the bulls of wrath? I mean, shouldn't they be in Sheol if they have died? No, because this is after the resurrection. The bulls of wrath are poured out, like I said before, at the beginning of the day of the Lord, which starts the rapture, starts with the rapture, excuse me. So the bride is absent from the earth during these bulls. That's why we're seeing them in Revelation 15 already around the throne. Okay, then proceeding forward in that chapter, we see the sixth bull is the gathering of the grapes of wrath as the river Euphrates is dried up and the kings of the east march to Israel with all of their troops. So the, the setup 
for the grapes of wrath being crushed in the valley of Jehoshaphat is that the Euphrates dries up and allows for all of these eastern troops to come to Israel. So between the sixth and seventh bowls, there's a statement from Yeshua, and he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Then when the seventh bowl is poured out, guess what we see? Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. The greatest earthquake ever. Never will there be one like this. The mountains and the islands crumble. Now in the sixth seal, the mountains and islands were moved out of their place. They were removed. The the crust of the earth shifts greatly. But on this occasion, the greatest earthquake actually brings down all of the mountains and islands and every wall that man has ever put up comes down. Now that's something that the Old Testament prophets tell us happens when Messiah or Yahweh comes down to tread the earth. They say that when he arrives, every hill will melt and crumble before him. Now, what else do we see? With this uh, last bowl, we see that 100-pound hailstones rain down on the earth, which coincides with the hailstones that we saw mentioned at the seventh trumpet. Same vent, same descriptors. Notice what's absent from this list, though. There's no fire thrown down. Why? Because the fire represents Yeshua's descent to the earth. That is him and the armies of heaven going down to earth. And that was already implied in chapter 16, verse 15, when he states, I am coming. He says between the sixth trumpet and the seventh, or excuse me, the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl, he says, I'm coming. That was when the fire is thrown down. So the fire is still in this. It was just already stated and it wasn't described as fire, but many, many Old Testament oracles speak of fire everywhere on the day of the Lord, of fire going forth before the army of the Lord. Heaven's army is the fire. In fact, Revelation 19.12 says that Yeshua's eyes are like a flame of fire as he descends to earth to tread the winepress of God's wrath. Are you seeing how this all comes together? How the, the language that's used at the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl is the same thing? It's telling us that this is all uh, a simultaneous event. These are all overlapping. Likewise, the rest of them overlap. Now, the other bowls, trumpets, and, uh, and seals are not identical. They're different. But in terms of their time, the, the way in which they unfold chronologically they do overlap. It's not like they're just sequential one after the next. I hope that's answered your question, Mark. Rebecca Gray sent in this question about Revelation chapter 20. She quoted this part, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. What is your take on beheading? Well, unfortunately, Rebecca, I think it's exactly what it sounds like. There's no need to treat this as being figurative or allegorical. The preferred method of getting rid of Christians during the last three and a half years of the age, the Great Tribulation period, will be to remove the head. It's an efficient way of doing executions. It makes a lot of sense in terms of just executing people in volume. Unfortunately, it's uh, it's a grim thing to think about, but this is what is ahead of us. There are lots of other people involved in the first resurrection. That's why the verse that you sent me starts 
that they sat upon thrones. The they is the bride. It's everybody involved in the first resurrection. But then John is shown specifically these people who have been beheaded. Why? Because God wants those of us who must go through the great tribulation to understand that martyrdom is worth it. And to understand that we must have courage because even if we get beheaded, we're going to be on thrones with Yeshua in the near future. Right before Revelation 13 describes the mark of the beast and the animated image of the beast that slays these people who refuse to bow to it, we are told that the beast will be allowed to make war on the saints and overcome us. And then God says this, If anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This demands the perseverance and faith of the saints. In other words, God is going to hand us over in the last three and a half years. We're not going to be protected from this persecution, from this tribulation. But it's for a purpose. It's to glorify God. It's to show the strength of our faith. So we are to persevere and be courageous in our trust. That's what God is calling us to. So yes, we will be persecuted. That's what makes it great tribulation. Regardless, we must refuse the mark of the beast. And if it means that we get our heads chopped off, so be it. Our reward will be far, far greater than the temporary terror of execution. The purpose of this passage is to give us courage. We've gone through all of our questions for this episode. If you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, please send me an audio recording of you asking your question. You can send that to questions at watchmanalexander.com. I want to let you know that I'm available for hire as a speaker. So if you would like to have me come and speak to your congregation or your organization, please get a hold of me by going to my website and clicking on the speaking page. It's watchmanalexander.com forward slash speaking.html. My favorite topics include overcoming the world and addictions, the return of the Antichrist, the Hebrew roots of our faith, and the meaning of the Maseroth. Again, watchmanalexander.com forward slash speaking.html. And on that page, you can listen to a speaking demo. If you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please give me a high star rating on your platform of choice, especially on iTunes? It will really help me to be found. That brings us to the end of episode 12. I have a guest lined up for my next show. It's Todd Bennett, author of more than a dozen books about the Hebraic roots of our faith. You're not going to want to miss this one. Until then, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Watchmen out. Thank you.